Well, so glad to be with you this morning. Um, it's been a year, actually, that I've been here uh, with you guys, and so I'm so blessed by you. I'm so grateful to uh, be a part of Bridges and get to see you uh, just every week. It's super cool uh, just to see um, not only, like, just, just everyone around us, you know, how everyone's faith has just grown so much, even in this year. And uh, I think just how encouraged uh, a lot of us are uh, just by reading God's Word and just being a part of uh, this church together. So I just want to say you have blessed me so much and my family. Thank you so much. Uh, you, you are an amazing encouragement, and I'm so grateful and joyful to be with you today. Today, we are in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is so important to us because... As you can look on the slide in the back, why? Jesus. Jesus. He is the most important part of the Bible. He is the most important part of understanding your faith, understanding theology, understanding what it is to be a Christian, hence the name Christian, because Christ is in the name Christian, right? And so, Really, Hebrews is going to show us a lot today. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verses 1 through 13. Before we get there, who do you guys think wrote Hebrews? It's a trick question, right? It's been debated over, two, like over the past couple thousand years of who wrote Hebrews. Now, some people say that it's Paul. Um, some people say that it's Paul, his words, very similar words to Paul, but it was written by Luke, um, who would have been like a scribe. He was a doctor, but he also wrote a lot of things down. He wrote the book of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. Some say it could have been Barnabas. The, the reality is we are not sure 100% on who wrote it, but that doesn't mean we despair. That doesn't mean we're discouraged. It means that we can trust and know that um, the way that church history works and the way that uh, they formulated the, the Bible, the canonization uh, over time, uh, that it was accepted um, at the Council of Nicaea and it was accepted throughout uh, church history. And we can look throughout church history and see uh, that Hebrews is a biblical book. And so therefore, if it's a biblical book, that means it has the authority to teach us, to train us, to discipline us. And what a great way um, to talk about the Bible as a way to be a guide to us, to be a mentor to us, and to show us what godly wisdom is. And so I'm super excited to be in Hebrews with you today. When exactly was it written? It was written before the destruction of the second temple in AD 70. And so we know that. And then what's the theme of Hebrews? Uh, you might have heard it earlier before. The theme of Hebrews is about Christ. It's Christocentric. It's about Christ as far as the Old and New Testaments are connected uh, through Christ, much like a relationship to God the Father is connected through Christ. And so that, that's the overall theme of Hebrews. What's happening before uh, chapter 12? Does anyone know what happens in chapter 11? Yes, the hall of faith. The people of faith throughout we see in the Old Testament, those who followed God and who were obedient to God, not perfect, but they were 
of faith in God. And so that was the whole uh, chapter 11 was examples of people of faith. But it leads us into something even greater. And what is that? It leads us to the greatest example of faith. Who's the greatest example of faith? Yeah, it's, it's the child, it's the kids ministry question, right? What's the answer? Jesus. There we go. Awesome. And then what's happening after this passage? So we're going from verses 1 through 13 today, but after this passage, we learn that the kingdom of God is a place that cannot be shaken. Much like Sean was saying, the world around us could be shaken. Things can happen that we maybe might not like uh, in the world, right? Political leaders may rise that we don't like, or, or things might happen. But God's kingdom is never shaken, and he is not phased. He is always sovereign and in control. And so the earth, the cities of this earth can be shaken, but God's holy and mighty kingdom will stand the test of time and be a kingdom in which Christ reigns eternally. And so that's a great hope that we have. And that is right after uh, verses uh, 13. It goes from 14 through pretty much the rest of the chapter. And so my first point for today is this. Run the race with endurance and look to Christ as the finish line. Okay, we're going to start in verse 1, so hopefully you have your Bibles, hopefully you have your tablets, whatever you might have, your laptop, Um, but we're going to be in God's Word today. And so we're going to be diving deep, starting in verse 1, and it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Who are the cloud of witnesses? Yeah? Hebrews 11, the cloud of witnesses. All of the people in uh, faith in the Old Testament mentioned in chapter 11, uh, just as they were examples of people of faith, we are also called to drop everything in our life that is hindering us from our walk with God, including sin, which so easily distracts us. It captivates us, right? And it turns our hearts away from following God and being obedient to Him. So we're, we're in a race. Throughout this passage, I want you to think about a race. I want you to think about that we are in a race. We are training for this race. This race is something that we want to win, right? If you're part of a race, you're looking to the prize or you're looking to winning, right? That's the goal. But in this race of life, the the race is the Christian life. The race is living daily life. But in this race, sin is like a huge weight placed on you. You're getting ready to go, and you have this huge weight, this maybe this burden on your back. And just imagine, 
It's 200, 300 pounds. How far do you think you're going to run with that weight? Maybe if you're really buff, you might get maybe, uh, I don't know, a few steps in. <laughs> but that's about it, because that weight is too much for you. Or, or if it was a ton, like literally a, a, a ton of weight. That, that, that's going to destroy your back. You're not going to be able to run, right? You're not even going to be able to really start the race. Because you're going to be on the floor, right? <laughs> if that weight is too much for you. And that's what sin is. Sin is this weight that is bearing down on us, this burden that we have. And the more weight that you have in a race, the more dragged down you are. Imagine yourself running a race and they have you put, put on, on this huge backpack and everyone else gets to go and, and you're going, but you have 350 pounds in your bag. You're not going anywhere. Right, Dan? Dan Don, uh, you, guys, you guys go hiking a lot, right? Okay. You guys carry pretty heavy backpacks sometimes, but is it ever like 300 pounds? <laughs> Would you ever do it? See? <laughs> There's my evidence right there. Two uh, great hikers right there. Well, I want to show you this example in an even greater way. I don't know how many of you have ever read the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Any, anyone's read or seen the movie? Well, in The Pilgrim's Progress, there's this great story about this journey of what a Christian life looks like or what this race may look like. What is The Pilgrim's Progress? It's a book written by John Bunyan while he was in prison for his faith. He was preaching in England, and in the 1600s, uh, he got arrested because he wouldn't stop preaching for his faith. And you know what he did? He still kept reading God's Word. He still kept reading and getting close to God. And he wrote this book while in prison. And this book became one of the most... Um, basically one of the most read books in history. And so this is a very impactful book. And in the book, there's this main character. His name is Christian. Now think about this for a second. Christian, what was he doing? In, in this book, it starts off with this. Christian was holding a book in his hand, and he had a burden on his back. He opened the book and started reading it. And as he began to read it, he started crying and asking himself, what should I do? What should I do? He read the book. The book really impacted his heart. He went home, and he tried to hide his despair from his family, from his wife, and from his kids, so that they wouldn't see. But he couldn't hold it on for long. He finally breaks. He breaks the silence and tells them that he read this book, and that unless they escape or somehow are delivered, that their city will be destroyed by fire from heaven. They heard what he said, and they thought, our dad, my husband, he's a little loco, a little insane. Okay? That's, that's what they thought. But he, he decided to go to bed. 
When he went to bed, he could not sleep. He would think about it every night, about his family, and thinking about um, just everything that he read in the book. But as he continued to read the book, and as he continued to get closer and dive into the book, his family's hearts, they started to harden. One day, he was walking in the fields. Sometimes he'd be praying. Sometimes he'd be reading. He read a passage, and it said this, What shall I do to be saved? Acts 16, 30-31. And it says this, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. He read this, and as soon as he read this, he encountered this man by the name of Evangelist. Evangelist means one who shares their faith. He tells them the only way to salvation is to go on a journey toward the light, and that there is a place known as the celestial kingdom. He begins his journey, but along the way he falls into the pit of mud known as the slough of despond, or in today's terms, the pit of despair. He was depressed. He was having a really difficult time. In his faith journey, he's experiencing this great amount of depression. He is stuck. And a man sees him stuck in this slough of despond. And what does he do? He goes and he pulls him out. His name was Help. He continues his journey as he hits, finally, what we call the wall of salvation. There he is exhausted from carrying this heavy burden all along the journey. He's been carrying it this whole time. And it's this great burden that's just on his back. It's huge. But above the wall, he sees something. And what does he see? He sees Jesus and the cross. And as soon as he sees them, his burden is released from him, and he is able to continue his journey. It's as soon as that moment that he looks up to the cross, and he looks up to Jesus, and he sees what Jesus did for him, that his burden is released. Now, that's not the end of the journey, and that's not the end of the book. There's still a lot more that goes on, right? He faces many more obstacles in his journey as he keeps going, but he was able to go over the wall of salvation, and that was the first part. But then he starts facing obstacles along the journey of the Christian life, some obstacles include worldly wisdom, hypocrisy, great despair, shame, envy, fear. But as he faces all these different obstacles, he also faces things that are godly, such as hope, faithfulness, and of course, I think his favorite, Christiana. Who's Christiana? It's his wife. Christian's wife, who's at the end of the journey, he finds her, and he's, he actually sees that she was following his footsteps, that she went through all the same things that he went through because she saw what he did and how his life was radically transformed. And she, she realized after that, after his life was radically changed and transformed from the man that he used to be, 
She became a believer, and she faced all the same things he faced. And so, I want to tell you guys, you, my friends, in this book, you are Christian. You're the main character. And throughout the passage in Hebrews, you're going to see that in your journey of faith, obstacles, there are many obstacles that you're going to face, but at the same time, God's marvelous power and majesty outshines any obstacles we can face. And that's part of the race. Just like Christian looked up to the cross, we look to Jesus as the ultimate example of faith and perfect righteousness. Only Jesus is truly 100% good. He suffered for us in order that we would be saved. He also sits at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. And so before we get into uh, Hebrews 12 and really dive in, um, I'm going to share just really important theology so that you know what a believer is, what a believer looks like, and what a believer's life really is about. And so this is called six parts of the Christian life. The first part is this. You're converted, or you, you basically are converted, you have faith, and you repent. They kind of happen at the same time. They're kind of intermingled together. But this is one important part. And what is it? When one is called, they have the opportunity to be exposed to the gospel, whether through general or specialized revelation. General uh, revelation is basically you see creation, you see nature, you see God's goodness, and you know that there is God. But then there's specialized revelation, which is different. Specialized revelation is identifying God's sovereignty, majesty, and through hearing his word preached or taught. So it's knowing the God of the Bible, and that's specialized revelation. So once an individual uh, has been exposed to it, they have the opportunity to choose and receive Christ into their hearts, their lives, and make him master and lord of their life. Once a person decides they choose to believe and receive the gospel, uh, that means they've been converted. Becoming a follower of Christ requires both faith and repentance. Placing faith in Christ means to put your hope, trust, purpose, and life in Christ. You once lived to serve your worldly passions and sinful desires, but through faith in Christ, you chose to give up your old life and to live for him. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Mark 8, 35. Repentance is an act of God because it's God's kindness, his mercy, and grace. When someone chooses to renounce his life of sin, surrender it to him, and to live for him. To repent means a person was walking on one path that was contrary to God's path. But they were called and they decided to turn away from their path and to go towards the way. And who's the way? According to John 14, 6, Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. And so this repentance does not mean that they do not ever sin again, but, but it, it is a heart change. And that when the believer does sin, that they feel remorse for what they did and they choose to not let sin rule over them. And, and you're going to ask, 
me, Brian, why are you teaching us this right now? Because it's so important. It's so important knowing what the race is. Because if you don't know what the race is, there's no way you can compete and there's no way you can win in a race, right? If you don't know what the race is, if you don't know if it's short distance, if it's long distance, you don't know what type of race this is, then, then you're not able to compete in it and you're not able to be prepared for it. So I think it's so important because especially today, our view of what the Christian life is can get skewed by media. It can be skewed by different types of churches. So I think it's so important to have a strong theological foundation of who God is, what the Christian life looks like, why we're here, what we're doing, what our purpose is, and there's so much more that goes into it. But that's the first step. So that was conversion, right? That is faith and repentance. That is placing your faith in Jesus and saying, I no longer want to live the way I used to. I want to live for Christ. I want to live with a brand new purpose. And at that moment, when you commit your life to Jesus and you ask him into your heart, you, you become justified. This is called justification. This is the next step, justification. Believers are justified, just like the song said, through grace alone. It is through grace alone, by faith alone. And it is a free gift. We see it in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and we also see it through Romans 1, 17. So if you have your notes, feel free to jot this down. Um, these are really important verses uh, when it comes to knowing God. And it's only through God's gracious love for his elect that we receive salvation or justification. He loves his creation, but this is important. God does not save everyone. And you can put in parentheses Romans 9, 17. Just like the flood, God gave people the opportunity to be saved, but they chose not to believe in Noah, so only eight people were saved in the flood. In the same way, only those who place their faith in Christ can be saved from God's eternal condemnation and wrath. For the wages of sin is death. The only way to escape is through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And that is Romans 6.23. So that's justification. It's just as if you never sinned. You are justified. Then, once you are justified, you are also adopted. This is called adoption. And this is those who are justified are also unified with Christ. They are abiding in him, and he is abiding in them. John 15, 5. They also become members of the family of God. They once were children of the world, of wrath, but now they are sons and daughters of light. Uh, that's Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. I know this is a lot of verses and a lot of stuff to take in, but I think it's really, really important, um, and it's a good reminder for, for a lot of us. And then he gave us a new family, which is also known as the church. The church is the people of God. We have gained salvation, and God is our Heavenly Father. Uh, he has become our Heavenly Father, provider, and shepherd. We have also received Jesus as our friend. John 15, 15. Okay, so that's the next step. And then there's another step. Then there is sanctification. And not a lot of people know about this. Um, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a daily process. It's a daily process in which believers begin to exemplify Christ-like attributes and the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.13 says it like this, but we ought always to give thanks 
to God for you. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So what is sanctification? It's a big word. We're using a lot of big words right now. Sanctification is this. Some days, as a believer, you may fall into temptation. But it's not on, based on the believer falling into sin. But once a, tr- a person has truly come to faith, they begin to love things God loves and hate things God hates. The believer will still struggle at times with sin and sometimes mess up from time to time. But the only way a believer can overcome sin is through a daily commitment to Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. And that's important to realize that is a work of God. Because I think a lot of times we like to say it's our own works or our own efforts. But in reality, if we look at theology, it's the work of God in our hearts. It's the work of His mercy, His grace, and that we're able to be sanctified and justified only through Him. Then there's another step, uh, perseverance. Every believer is chosen and each person is given the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit dwells within the individual, it works toward their sanctification and that no matter how many times they may fall in their walk with God, He will pick them back up. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, if, if they're truly a believer, the Holy Spirit's in them and it will convict them of their sin. It will show them where they're going wrong and how they can repent and come back to Christ. Philippians 1.6 says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ or at the day that we go to heaven um, or we pass away and we meet Jesus. Nothing can separate a believer from God's love, not even their own struggle of darkness and sin. God prevails. And we see that in Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then there's a, a lot more that goes into Romans 8, but it's very helpful. Then there's a next stage. This is one of the final stages of the Christian life. And this is glorification. This is the, one of the final stages of the race. Each person is glorified as they were created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. I want to make it clear really quickly. We get to share in God's glory when we go to heaven. Uh, we, we, we get to um, basically have new bodies and, and all these new things, but we're not uh, Mormon. So we don't believe that we are God or that we become many gods. We get to share in His glory um, and, and we all were placed in the image of God. But because of our sin, our sin problem, each person's full image of God has actually become distorted. But when man is reunited with Christ, when, when believers are reunited with Christ, they will share in God's glory and be glorified. And you're going to say, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. Romans 8.30. If you go to Romans 8.30, you'll see that we all get to partake in uh, going to heaven and getting new bodies and being part of that glorification process based on God's grace. And so each person will share God's holiness and the people of God who are part of the body of Christ will be considered holy, righteous, and redeemed through Christ. Okay, now 
we're going to go back to Hebrews 12. So you, you have a little bit of context now for what the race looks like. Now we're going to go to verse 2 in Hebrews 12 too. What does it say in Hebrews 12 too? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So our first thing that we need to do is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as he is both the founder and perfecter of faith. You're going to say, wait a second, Brian. What about those people in Hebrews 11? Didn't they come first? No. Jesus came first. Jesus was before Abraham. Jesus was before Moses. Jesus was before all the people of the hall of faith because Jesus is God. And so he is the author. He is the perfecter. He is the founder of what true faith is. And he is the ultimate example of our faith. Who, for the joy set before him, he knew, he knew our weaknesses. He knew our struggles. He knew our shame. He knew our regret. He knew our pain and all the other things that can become obstacles in our Christian walk. Yet, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He did it out of love. God is a God of love. No matter, God is love. No matter what the world will say, you know, there's a lot of people I've heard, um, even at times in theology classes, before they have taken the theology class, they're like, isn't the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? The God in the Old Testament seems really harsh and mean. And the God of the New Testament seems all happy and joyful. That's not true. God is the same God in the beginning and the end. He never has an end, and He is eternal, and He is full of love and grace and mercy. And he had a plan before time that he was going to save us through Jesus' resurrection, through his, his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. But he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that's actually... If you look into the Psalms, let me see. Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. That's what we call a royal psalm. There are psalms in the Bible that point to Jesus as the ruler and the uh, messianic king, but also as God. The Lord says to who? My Lord. Sit at the right hand and I will make your enemies my footstool. We'll go back to Hebrews 12 too. What does it say at the end of the verse? And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is seated right there. He is in control. He is also reigning. And, and that basically is prophecy right there. That is prophecy and it's pointing to Jesus because Jesus 
is the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. He is in charge. He is in control. And he has enemies sitting at the footstool because he is in power. People thought that the cross, like people that did not follow God, thought that the cross destroyed Christianity during that time, right? They thought, okay, now Jesus is dead. But as soon as he resurrected, he came in power and we saw the truth and we saw the reality that Christ is king and that he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And then verse 3 in Hebrews 12.3, if you go there. Consider him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus experienced the most amount of hardships and difficulties that anyone in this world could ever experience. But we also share in some of those sufferings. We also, as Christians and believers, um, will face persecution and face suffering and face sacrifices that we have to make. But, just like Jesus had joy looking towards the future at what would happen, we also aren't to be driven to despair. Why? Because Paul says it like this. 2 Corinthians 4 says this in verse 8 through 9. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We may be struck down, but we're not destroyed. So point number two, this is uh, the next few verses, is that our Heavenly Father will discipline us, and that will result in us becoming more like Him. I'll say it again. Point number two, our Heavenly Father will discipline us, and that will result in us becoming more like Him. Okay, so starting in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What does that mean? I'll let you think about it for a second. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It means we have not sacrificed our entire life against sin as Christ did. He shed his blood for our sin. He was the only one who was actually able to do this, right? He was the perfect sacrifice. Also, the people who first read this, they, first, they faced persecution. But not all the people that read this were actually uh, killed for their faith. So in one sense, it could be that we haven't, uh, we did not, we struggled against sin, but we didn't have to face uh, being killed or dying like Jesus Christ did. In another sense, it could also mean that the people this was addressed to were persecuted, but they weren't martyred. They weren't killed for their faith. And so it could have a, uh, one of those two me main meanings. But I think it's the second one, that they were persecuted, they faced persecu persecution, but they were not killed for their faith. Their main battle was facing against the temptation of sin rather than physically being killed. And so that was their battle. That was the thing that they were struggling with, was 
um, following God and, and actually doing what the second verse, the first two verses say, to drop your sin, to let go of your sin, to stop living in sin. That so easily entangles us. The next verse says this, Hebrews 12, 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So my question is, did you forget that you're a child of God? Do you forget that at times? I I think it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to forget that we are a child of God. But you are a child of God. And like any child, you will receive discipline, right? But as you receive discipline, how you respond really matters. He says two things. One was not to take it lightly. Don't take God's discipline lightly. Don't take it as if it means nothing. And at the other extreme, don't let God's discipline lead you to despair, to where you don't have faith anymore. We will be disciplined. There are times that God takes certain things out of our lives. We don't know why. Well, we do know why for discipline, so we can grow in our walk with God. Verse 6 in Hebrews 12. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. That's how we know why. He disciplines us because he loves us. And chastises every son whom he receives. Remember that God disciplining us means that he actually loves us. Think about it like this. If you're a parent, or if you've had a parent and they've disciplined you for the right reason, it was for your good, right? I remember getting video games taken away. I remember my grandma smashing some of my video games. We don't talk about that. The heartbreak I went through, missing my Xbox or PlayStation. (laughs) But now that I look back at it, and I was like, you know what? It was worth it. I I see. I see what she was trying to do. Same thing with cleaning my room. I understand now. (laughs) Especially being married. (laughs) We both share the same living quarters, right? So I got to keep it clean. Um, But yeah, discipline's for our good. It's for our maturity. Although it may hurt and not be enjoyable, it's going to help you grow. It's going to help you mature. And here's another example of God's discipline in the Bible. It says it like this. This is from one of the wisest men in the Bible, King Solomon. And he says it like this in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. My son... Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so God is our heavenly father and he's looking out for us in reality. Some of the things that might be taken out of our lives and other things that might be be put in is actually for our good. So we would grow in our faith. So we would grow really looking to him as our father. Because maybe a young child, I, I, I don't know, uh, <laughs> a young child is pretty dependent on their parents, right? 
They, can, they can't really do too much on their own. And it's the same way with us. I think sometimes God allows for things to happen so we would be more reliant and dependent on God rather than trying to be self-sufficient because that's what we try to do in America, right? Especially as men, a lot of us, we try to be self-sufficient, self-made. That's like a huge thing right now where we're like, yeah, I made a million dollars all by myself, right? Look at these tattoos, self-made, right? We try to do that, right? But God's very opposite. He's like, no, I want you to be reliant on me. I want you to be fervent in prayer. I want you to ask me for things. I want to be a father to you. You don't need to be self-made. You don't need all those things because why? That's just pride. That actually keeps us from having God as our father or from us really being able to be connected to him. So, so we should be thinking about that. Hebrews 12, 7 through 8. And we're almost done here, so we'll wrap up soon. Don't worry, guys. <laughs> it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and sons. The word discipline here in the Greek is paideia. It means training. It means instruction. Like I was saying before, the Bible is our trainer. It instructs us. It guides us. It teaches us, right? But God um, also uh, disciplines us. The goal is not to focus on the difficulty of that discipline, but to persevere through life, through the discipline, through God's correction, through His instruction, and through Him allowing our faith to be tested. Like it says in James 1, 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials of various kinds. Why? For the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. And steadfastness produces, what does it produce? Endurance. And endurance produces perfection. Okay? There is a reason behind our trials. There is a reason behind our discipline. There is a reason why we are facing difficulties. But that does not mean that God is not in control. It's the very opposite. God is in control. He's overseeing these things. He's allowing them to happen for our good, for our, our joy, our maturity, our growth, our walk with God, for all these different things. Romans 8.28 says it like this. Do you guys know Romans 8.28? For God causes, causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. God allows discipline in our lives for a reason. And although it may, quite frankly, suck, right? <laughs> not feel good, God is doing it for a reason. And he's not doing it because he doesn't love us. In fact, it's the opposite. It's because he loves us. He wants to see us trusting in him, dependent on him, loving him. And also, I, I also think about it like this. When people don't discipline their kids, right? Think about the people who didn't discipline their kids at all. At least in my life, I've seen a couple of kids who weren't disciplined Think about how are they doing now? Um, some of them are living at home still, um, and they're in their 30s or late 20s or 40s or 50s. 
but I don't, I'm just saying, some aren't paying their bills, some are in debt, like lots of debt, some are dealing with law enforcement. It's not true in every case, but for the most part, um, parents that don't discipline their kids, um, they're not showing them what God does for us. And I think discipline actually is showing us the gospel. It's showing us that we love our, our kids. We love those um, that we care about and that we're entrusted to serve and entrusted to take care of. And I, I've seen a lot of times where um, kids are disciplined and uh, they've grown into godly, responsible adults. And I think that's important. I think that is important. It's not true in every case. I mean, kids also have free will. They have the ability to uh, rebel and to not follow God. But I think if we are instructing our kids, if we are showing them that God matters, the gospel matters, that honoring your parents matters, then I think we're instructing them the right way. And I think it is, I don't just think, I know it's important to discipline our kids. Hebrews 12.9 says this, Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for good, that we may share in his holiness. And I don't know, for some of you guys, what seemed like a short time maybe seemed like eternity. I remember the weeks going by, not having my, my video games. I remember, Mom. Yeah, I'm looking at you. No, <laughs> no. but... Yeah, for some of us, discipline seems like it's taking forever or it seems like eternity. But now looking back at it, I can say it was definitely worth it. Verse 11 says this, For the moment, all discipline, it seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Our Heavenly Father is greater than any earthly father we could ever have. Even though... We may have good fathers here on this earth. God still outshines our fathers. He's not flawed in any way. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't try to hurt us. But he's loving and he's protective. If we've obeyed our parents, shouldn't we obey the God who is kind, who is just, and who is always right? God wants us to be happy, but he also desires us to be holy. To be holy does not mean that we act like we're above everyone, right? But to be holy means to be like God in our character, in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. To be like God is to bear his spirit in which it's in us and it produces fruit. And it also allows us to lay down our earthly lives as God did. God calls us to something that might sound strange. He calls us to die to ourselves. This means to die to our selfishness. And instead to have a heart transformation where we desire what God desires. And that most importantly, that we desire God. It means just like in verse 1 and verse 4 of Hebrews 12, we give our burden of sin to God 
And we're running the race without sin holding us back. Sin will hold us back in life and in our spiritual journey if we allow it to be our master. Just like God told Cain in Genesis 4-7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule or master over it. Point number three, and this is my final, well, one of my final points for today. Don't be weak, but be strong in the Lord. Don't be weak, but be strong in the Lord. And it says it like this in Hebrews 12, 12 through 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be out of, put out of joint but rather be healed. Verse 12. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Job says it like this in Job 4, 3 through 4. Behold, and he's talking to God, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. It's God who's making us strong. It's God who, even though we're weak at times, even though we have had difficulties, it's God who is our strength. God is our strength even in the midst of our weaknesses. And then verse 13. I think Proverbs 4, uh, 26 through 27 also does a great uh, example of explaining the verse. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Ponder, to ponder means to think about it. Think about your path. Think about where you're going in life. Think about your Christian life. Are you in the pit of despair? Are you in the slough of despond? Or are you looking towards the celestial kingdom? Are you looking towards God and heaven and looking to the joy that's set before you? which is Christ. And that's important to ask because there are so many difficulties that come up in life. There are so many things that can distract us and so many barriers that can be put on the path in our walk with God. But are you pondering your step? Are you thinking about where you're going and what direction you're going? Are you looking to Jesus? Verse 27 of Proverbs 4 says this, Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. And so we see throughout this whole, all of these verses we've read throughout today, a lot of them say, repent, turn away from evil, don't hold on to sin. Life is so much better without sin when you're following God and you are striving. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you're striving towards God. You're loving the things God loves. You're hating the things God hates. And trust me, when, when I started uh, really pursuing God and started letting go of my sin and, and turning to God, my life became so much better. My anxiousness, it, it, it went away. My sadness, my depression, it went away. I started having joy and actually confidence in God and even in myself that through God, He was working in me, even through weak Brian. 
God's working in you too. And what a joy it is that you are his sons and daughters. You are adopted. You are taken care of. You are loved. And I think throughout life, if you're forgetting that, remind yourself of that. Remember, you are loved. You are cherished. You are adopted. You are cared for. You are loved by a God that cares about you. And so my main point for tonight, or today, sorry, I didn't preach that long, did I? <laughs> it's nighttime already? Oh, wow. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this timer didn't work? No, I'm just kidding. Um, my main point is this. Run the race. Look to Christ. Drop your sin and run to him. I'll say that again. Run the race. Look to Christ. Drop your sin and look to him. It's really that simple. In life, there's all these distractions that can take place that distract us from what matters. Remember that the primary thing that matters is your relationship with God and with others around you. But first and most importantly, it's that personal relationship with God that matters most. So I want you guys to think about this today. How is your walk with God? How is your journey as a Christian? Are you still following Christ? Are you stuck in the pit of despair? Are you worried? Are you scared? Are you facing temptations? Are you looking to Christ? Because trust me, my journey at times can be rough, and I'm sure your journeys can be rough. I, I know life can be difficult, and there can be so many great joys, but there can also be so many disappointments in life. Are you looking to Christ? Christ looked to us as the joy of enduring the cross, right? Are you looking to Christ as the joy for your life? And I'm going to leave with that. Are you looking to Christ as the joy of your life? He looked to us as the joy to endure the cross. Are we willing to endure this Christian life for the joy of Christ? Will you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for your marvelous grace. Uh, just the amazing God you are. You are our Father, and you love us so much. You adopted us, you chose us, and you love us. May we love you and follow you. It's in your mighty and powerful name, Father God. Amen.